and how we got started. The idea was to uh, have a professor or an expert in an area come into Upper House and try to cram in, in one evening, what they might teach over a long semester, right? So kind of a romp through science and religion, a romp through the history of Christianity, or all through prayer, right? Which we're gonna tackle tonight, a really small uh, topic that doesn't need no joking. It's a big topic. Uh, they will generate lots of questions. I'm happy uh, that we have Amos here to uh, anticipate those questions. But the idea is to sort of walk you through uh, over the evening. It is a longer evening than maybe some of you are used to. Uh, a, a big topic and try to narrow it down uh, into a short, a few short sessions. So that's the idea. We've got this one tonight, one coming up in March. And then on Christ and Culture with Dr. Ryan Tafalowski from Denver Seminary. And then we have one in April. Who is that one? Oh, it's Drew Johnson, who is at Hope College. And he's walking through uh, ethics and the Old Testament uh, in April. So I hope you can come uh, to that one as well. And we'll send out email reminders as the time approaches. Okay, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Amos Young. He is the professor of theology and mission at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He came to Fuller in 2014 as Professor of Theology and Mission and Director of the School of Intercultural Studies and the Center for Missiological Research, overseeing the PhD and teaching intercultural studies programs. In 2019, he was appointed Dean of the School of Intercultural Studies and of the School of Theology, and in 2020, he was named the Chief Academic Officer for Fuller Seminary. All right, he's authored more then authored or edited more than 50 books, and this number really wowed me, 225 scholarly articles. Um, I have five or six, and I thought I was doing well. So uh, I was going to read the list, but we'll be here for a couple hours, so I won't do that. And I, and I asked Dr. Young, which book should I highlight? He said, tell them to go to Amazon, just put my name in, they'll find the books in there. Uh, his most recent publication, and though I will note that, because I thought the title was very fitting for the work we do at Upper House, it's called The Holy Spirit and higher education. And it was published by Baylor University Press, is that right? Just last year, I look forward to grabbing that book. Okay, uh, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Amos Yelling. Thank you, Tony. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. Um, and I'm not sure that I understood all that behind how you explained what this was supposed to be like a run through something I teach over the course of the semester. Um, so you're not going to get quite that, but uh, I'm going to be also very interested in hearing your thoughts about prayer. I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I consider myself any kind of an expert in prayer. I do do my, my share of praying. And, uh, but uh, when this invitation came to talk about this topic, uh, it struck me that, you know, I've been doing quite a bit of work as a theologian on particularly the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And so I thought, uh, looking at the theme of prayer in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts is not something I've done. And so I thought, it'd be a nice opportunity for me to see what one author in the New Testament, St. Luke, who wrote both the Gospel of Luke, the Third Gospel, and the Book of Acts, what do you have to say about prayer? And how might that also then inform uh, how we might think about prayer, how we might perhaps pray? And the, so the topic that we framed it the way tonight is Christian praying, the hows and the whys and the whats of this mysterious activity. I do hope, uh, given that we're 
Well, you know, we could certainly break out into prayer before the end of the night, but for now, we'll plan on at least talking about it. And I'm hoping as well that as we talk about for the next few moments that um, perhaps it's something that many of us, if not all of us, have done at least sporadically, maybe sometimes more regularly, and maybe for many of us, maybe we've prayed a lot over the course of our entire lives. Uh, and in that respect, perhaps, you know, prayer is something that we have become used to. And I'm hoping over the next few minutes as we revisit descriptions of prayer in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts that uh, maybe maybe it might be a little bit uh, strange for us to sort of think about prayer in that way. And hopefully as well, um, as we think about it, our curiosity will also be piqued to reconsider what Scripture might have to say about prayer. And in that perspective also then how we might uh, continue maybe to pray maybe even a little bit more differently as well, and maybe also with a bit more wonder attached to this activity of praying that, that we might do fairly regularly. So, as was indicated, there will be three parts to... This was for your benefit. I don't really need it myself. <laughs> Let's see if it works it. All right. So, uh, there will be three parts, um, and what we will do is we will begin this first few moments with looking at Jesus' praying uh, in Luke's Gospel, and then in the middle of our evening tonight, we will look at the praying of the Apostles, or at least, again, what's recorded about the praying of Jesus and of the Apostles, and then we'll close the last third of our evening with bringing back a home today for us. And that segment will look particularly at the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel as a result of our considerations. And I, I think that this will help us to both, on the one hand, appreciate um, perhaps why we do pray the way we do. I think we will we'll observe and we'll notice how both in the Gospel and in the Book of Acts, there are clues to sort of historic or at least first century Christian praying that uh, persists into our time. Um, in particular, I think, you know, for Jesus, uh, and again, for Christians who pray, um, Jesus is uh, not only Lord and Savior for Christians, but also an exemplar of a variety of sorts, right? So to what degree might, as we visit and, and get perspective on Jesus' own prayer, uh, also see how that also provides some models or prototype for us of some sort. So starting with Jesus, going to his followers, and then bring them home for today. All right, well, let's begin by um, observing some of the where's and the when's of Jesus' prayer. So, um, Jesus prays at his baptism. Um, and if you remember, it's, it, okay, so I'm, I'm looking here specifically when Luke says something about Jesus actually praying. I want to come back and say something more about what, what, what it doesn't say what it's praying, but the first reference to Jesus praying is at his baptism. Uh, it says Jesus was baptized and prayed, and of course then we hear uh, the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, whom I will please hear him. Right? That's in Luke chapter 3. After that, we also, uh, Luke observes uh, at various places that Jesus withdraws into deserted places. Jesus uh, is indicated to go up to mountains on a couple different occasions. He goes up mountains. Uh, one in chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration, where he receives a vision with Peter and James and John. So he takes three of his disciples with him and goes up the mountain to pray. 
One in chapter 22, the Mount of Olives, where he's preparing for the Gethsemane uh, experience. Uh, he goes and prays all night long, Luke tells us in chapter 6, right before um, he gives the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, and then, or it just simply says he withdraws and is alone in, again, deserted places. Uh, in 442, it doesn't say explicitly that Jesus prayed, but it does say that he withdrew for a period of time. But implicit in that withdrawal is his prayer. So there's a sense in which we know that by and large, Jesus practiced prayer by himself, but not always. Again, right? He does take his disciples with him up on the Mount of Olives, and we'll see in a moment as well that he, um, well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took his disciples with it as well. I do want to make one more observation here before we go to uh, the next part of what I wanted to say, is that if you recall in Luke's gospel, there is a story of what happened to him when he was 12 years old. Uh, his parents had gone with him to a festival, and they were on their way home, and they figured out that Jesus was uh, nowhere to be found, and so they were wondering, well, where is he? And they go back looking for him, and they find him in the temple in Jerusalem, if you remember the story. And uh, they asked him, you know, you know um, why, uh, where have you been? And he said, well, don't you know that I need to be in my father's house, temple? Later, in the latter part of Luke's gospel, uh, this is when he's overthrowing the, um, the merchants in the courthouse of the temple. He does say, right, uh, don't we know that the prophet said that my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer? Okay. So again, in chapter 2, when he is found at the temple, it doesn't say that he was there praying. In fact, it says he was sort of talking to the teachers and, and so on and so forth. But at least between what is recorded there and what he tells us in the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, we know that the temple is known as a place of prayer. Um, I think the, the last thing I want to say relative to what is summarized here um, as we, I think, all know, um, Jesus' public ministry begins more or less, you know, many scholars will agree, you know, maybe 27, 28, 29, 30. Outside of Luke chapter 2, that 12 tells us what happened when he was 12 years old. We don't have any, uh, much at all, uh, in the gospel accounts of what he did. <coughs> I'd like to invite us to think, however, about the fact that whatever else he might have done between the time of his infancy and the time of his coming in, in, in his public ministry. My guess is that he was doing a lot of this praying. Because the glimpse of the windows that we see in the Jesus's life of prayer that it is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, and by the way, in Mark and in Matthew as well, which I'll make a few more comments about later. Um, you know, these, these windows that we see into Jesus's praying uh, suggest that they were habits that he had nurtured and developed over time. So all we get is just sort of snapshots. He went and did this. You know, he would do his ministry, but then he'd withdraw, right? So um, I, my, my, um, I would like us to imagine that Jesus develops uh, a life, a way of life of praying that we then, that these various little snapshots in the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels give us uh, some picture of, right, as we can imagine. Um, now, there are a half a dozen references to Jesus praying in Luke chapter 22. 
And so here's all of a sudden where we see circumstantially, if you remember that, so Luke 22, Luke is 24 chapters, so we're almost at the end of the gospel. And how many of us, you know, we know the story of the gospel, what happens at the end? Well, you know, they kill him, right? They crucify him, right? So chapter 22 is right, we're getting to the heart of the passion narrative. And um, it tells us there that he goes up the Mount of Olives, he takes his disciples with him, and then it says a stone's throw away from his disciples. Well, so he's sort of by himself. He's with them, but he's, but he's by himself, right? There's this sort of um, interesting sort of spacing. And then Luke tells us, you know, with earnestness and with anguish and with fervor, he's praying, right? And we, we know some of those prayers, you know, uh, Lord, if it is possible, remove this cup from me, for, for instance, right? Um, praying, and Luke is one who records Jesus uh, praying and sweating blood, part of that anguish. That's the, the characterization, I think, that we see in the Gospel of Luke. So there is sort of the, you know, withdrawal night, uh, you know, uh, into quiet places, in deserted places, mountains. Uh, and then there's, we're coming into anticipating some very, very challenging, very, very, um, you know, difficult, uh, painful, literally, um, events that are going to be unfolding. And, and he is, he is uh, steadying himself. He is uh, grounding himself, if you will. And then, of course, he wants to invite the disciples to do so with him, right? And we'll see in a few moments more uh, some of the actual ways in which, uh, in, in chapter 22, and on the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane, he continues to both pray, not just for himself, but for his followers, as we'll see. All right. Uh, in terms of posture, uh, again, uh, in, in Gethsemane, we're told that Jesus did kneel in prayer. And we'll see the kneeling in prayer mentioned quite a few more times in the book of Acts, right? But that's the only place where it actually gives us a posture uh, for Jesus' prayer. Again, uh, the baptism, you know, he's being baptized and he's praying, so you, you've got prayer in that particular context. Uh, deserted places, you can imagine the walking up and to and fro. So you can imagine a variety of physical postures and activities that uh, Jesus is doing, but at least in one place, we, uh, Luke tells us specifically uh, about all of us that Jesus knelt in prayer. How, how, how do we then characterize why Jesus prayed? And I think that the one overarching theme that I've observed in places that Luke tells us about Jesus praying is pray to not lose heart. The way I characterize, and you might again recognize some of these themes as you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke. And in particular, I would say that that the not lose heart is not it's it's for both himself and for others, right? So Jesus, uh, the purposes of prayer is that we can be strengthened, we can be encouraged, we can uh, be uh, you know undergirded in endurance. So persevering prayer. So the one story that, that Luke records Jesus telling about prayer is the, the parable of the widow and the un unjust judge, right? And, and Luke tells us the reason why Jesus told this parable was to encourage the disciples to pray and not lose heart. Okay? And of course, we know the story of, of the parable, right? The, the widow has to keep coming back to and demanding the judge for justice. And finally, the judge relents, and Jesus tells this story to say, 
Um, I want you to pray in the same way. Just keep pressing in. Don't lose heart. Don't be weary in praying. And in that respect, we see Jesus himself, uh, if you will, also being an intercessor and one who um, encourages others in prayers. Uh, so, for instance, uh, in Luke 21, it says, Jesus, he, he said to the, the disciples, Be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that will take place and stand before the Son of Man. In chapter 21, he's sort of saying, Here's what's going to happen with Jerusalem. Sort of, you know, pointing the head to and, you know, prophesying, perhaps. Uh, again, most scholars would agree that, that the Gospel of Luke was written after the fall of Jerusalem in the, in 87, uh, in the 70, 70th year. Um, but perhaps Jesus, if you will, foretold that these things were going to happen. And so he then says, be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all of these things that will take place and the stand for the Son of Man. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32, now there's a lot of olives. He comes and he says to the disciples, uh, to Peter in particular, but I pray for you that your own faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Remember that part of uh, the story in which Jesus is, in fact, interacting with his disciples and interacting in particular with Peter. In fact, after having just Again, uh, told Peter, warn him that, uh, you know, you're not, you're going to betray me at a certain point. But I pray for you, Jesus said. Uh, further on in Luke, when he had reached the place, he said, he said to them right before he leaves, I remember I, showed, I mentioned a few minutes ago that he drew a stone's throw away, right? Right before he did that, he says, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. And then a few moments later, he comes back to that throw a stone's throw away. He says to them, why are you sleeping? Get out and pray that you may not come to the time of trial. So see how these various occasions in which Jesus' praying is mentioned include a number of occasions where, where Jesus wants to both undergird himself and others with fortitude, with capacity, with endurance, with uh, what they need for what's coming ahead, Right? not losing heart, rather gaining strength and encouragement. Jesus is, in all of these instances, not just a prayer, but an intercessor. That's how we would put it, right? Jesus as an intercessor, praying on behalf of others as well. And, and finally, again, uh, passionate praying, right? Vigilant praying um, for his own relief, in which he asked the Lord, the Father, uh, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. So we see Jesus praying for himself, Jesus praying for his followers, uh, and Jesus encouraging the kind of prayer that recognizes uh, times of trial, times of difficulty, times of challenge are always around the corner. Don't lose heart. Whatever else you're doing, praying is some of the ways in which we Engage, navigate, you know what, endure, uh, are sustained in and through uh, these aspects and these kinds of life's difficulties and challenges. Um, I want to now make a few final comments in terms of Jesus' prayer relative to the Lord's Prayer. Now, in the third part of our time tonight, uh, I'm going to look at the Lord's Prayer again. 
in particular for our praying. And so for these next moments, I want to spend some time on the Lord's Prayer relative to just understanding them in relationship to Jesus, right? So there are two versions of the Lord's Prayer, I think many of us know. Uh, Luke gives us a bit of a shorter version, and Matthew gives us a bit of a longer version. Um, for some of the, you know, for, for you know, one of the reasons that, that scholars um, uh, attempt to then kind of, um, what I'm looking for, it's make coherent the different accounts in the Gospels, is to say, well, sometimes, you know, one of, one, of, one of the criteria that they use is to say that if there's a shorter version, that might have been the earlier account, and the longer version of an account is usually the more uh, developed version that is then written later on. Okay, you know, then scholars then argue about these sorts of things, along with a lot of other criteria, and I just want to at least mention that we can pick that up later if you want during the Q&A time. But at least we know there's a short version, and then there's a longer version. Uh, some say Luke is before Matthew. Others say, well, there was another version of the prayer. Uh, then Luke took out his part that was relevant to him, and Matthew took out the other parts that were relevant to him, and there we go. Okay. Um, I can make a few, note, a few observations about the differences of the prayer. Uh, Luke doesn't have the Father in heaven. Matthew does have the Father in heaven. Uh, for Luke, your kingdom come doesn't need to include your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whereas Matthew adds your earth, your, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? Now, again, we have all kinds of reasons why we might say, well, why, why was this not here? Why was this not there? I'll just give you my own uh, two and a half cents worth about these things. Right? Um, I, would, I would encourage us to think about this Jesus in Luke's account for whom Luke is interested in Jesus and how Jesus empowers the disciples to bear witness to him in this world, in this way, in their, uh, you know, in their, in across the Mediterranean world. Okay. So, in that respect, Luke uh, assumes that we are inviting the coming of God's reign. We're inviting the coming of God's spirit for our efforts here in this life and in this world. Matthew, in that respect, I mean, there's a sense in which you know Matthew spiritualizes. Uh, some of what happens. And Luke, in that respect, has a more sort of concrete, um, this-worldly orientation. And also, uh, and, I, and I'm going to make more about this later on, but um, I'm going to say that, that this idea of praying to God, Yahweh, uh, in terms of the Father, is a new thing that the Gospels and Jesus's ministry and legacy leaves with us. Now, for those of us who have prayed regularly or not, we'll probably think, oh yeah, yeah that's very normal, right? But here, um, Yahweh in the Old Testament was not necessarily understood in fatherly terms, okay? Um, Jesus, over the course of his 25, 27, 30 years coming into his public ministry, had developed a life of prayer in relationship to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that allowed him to, uh, and endeared him to address that God as Father. And he also, when they said, teach us to pray, he said, well, I want all of you to also address that God as Father. He is our Father in that respect, right? Um, which I think very interesting because um, 
you know, we, there's, there's a lot more now we know about parent-child and father-children relationships and, and complications involved therein. So when you think about Jesus's natural parental relationships, now Luke tells us that Mary conceived also of, of the Holy Spirit, and so, but she was betrothed and married Joseph, right? So Joseph was Jesus's at least earthly parent, father. In that. So Jesus had a father figure in his home, right? Um, and one might suggest, one might think that, well, it doesn't sound like that father figure was all that bad. Um, I think there might be something to that, you know, uh, Joseph, um, you know, you can could, you could imagine if, if Joseph was abusive to Jesus, how might that have impacted Jesus' father image over time, right? So, again, we're speculating at a certain level. But here's my point, right? That in Jesus' relating to the creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he had developed a confidence in being able to approach and being intimate with that God. A confidence that this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not just my God, but but the kind of God who is fatherly. Okay, and so we'll we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go. Uh, but I at least wanted to mention that because I think that's an important point here um, as we as we think about that our own praying certainly in a few more moments. Uh, most of the rest of the prayer is uh, pretty much. Um, um, Parallel across Matthew and Luke, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, uh, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to a time of trial. <clears throat> All right, so I've done, I've done some of that, Father, we've talked about that. Okay, so the last couple things I want to say before we break out a little bit and have a little short conversation is... Um, the, so in Luke 11, where, where Luke records the disciples asking Jesus to teach him to pray, and then gives them the short, Jesus gives them the short prayer, that's followed by description where Jesus says to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And the answers from within, do not bother me, the door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you everything I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him everything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give you whatever he needs. Interestingly, that account follows in Luke's gospel right after Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. And you can see how that account parallels the uh, parable of the uh, widow in chapter 18. Both of them are designed to impress upon the disciples. Keep pressing in prayer. Keep asking. Because God will hear. Right? That's the story that he's telling uh, the disciples about this friend. Right? This friend, if nothing else, because of the persistence of the asker, he will then respond and, and respond to the request. And then he says this. Again, this is all part of what happens after the loose account of the Lord's Prayer. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, search and you will find, knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you, if your child asks for a fish, will give you a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? 
If you then were evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Okay, so this is not found in Mark or Matthew, but it's consistent with Luke's authorship and his interest in telling the story of Jesus as one who was anointed by the Spirit, and then telling the story of the disciples, which we'll come back after the break, and they go out under the empowerment of the Spirit. Okay? For Luke, the role of the Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus and the life and the ministry of the apostles is central. And it's intriguing to me that here Jesus teaches the disciples to pray at the end of the day, culminates for this part of Luke's narrative with, well, the answer to every prayer is, you need the Holy Ghost. Or you need to be filled with the Spirit. Or you need more of the Spirit. And guess what? Keep asking because God will give you good things. And the good things are summarized by what the Holy Spirit represents. Okay, so uh, I wanted to, in that respect, then spend for the next few moments, um, maybe 10 minutes or so, Tony, right, I think, where you, in fact, yeah, everybody, everybody should be around a group of four or five people, and there might be. In fact, this brother over here needs some friends. Don't bring here. Or you can join that one, yeah. Um, so I put up a, a number of discussion questions for you around your table to kind of unpack yourselves, um, and um, I think we'll do this for about ten or ten minutes or so, and then feel free to get up and get some more. Uh, refresh yourself, and then we're going to start back up at what time? Yes, you take 10 minutes now. We'll start back in about uh, 25 after. Yeah. The questions are? So I'll give them 10 minutes, and I'll, I'll get back on the mic and say, all right, 10-minute break, and then we'll come back and reconvene. What is it about Jesus' pray? Where, how, where, when, where, how? that might encourage, or not, our understanding and practice of prayer two centuries later, up to millennia later. Uh, given what is known about Israel's relationship with Yahweh in the Old Testament, what are the implications of Jesus addressing Yahweh as Father uh, in prayer? And how do we receive or resist the fatherhood of God for our lives today? 